Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze the music, legacy, and cultural impact of all your favorite pop stars. I'm your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm a DJ, writer, and all-around pop music fanatic. I've spent my entire life and career thinking about, dissecting, and being obsessed with pop stars. Their music, their legacies, how they relate to one another, to the larger pop musical landscape, and to culture more broadly. What separates an icon from a mere superstar? Why do some careers become the soundtrack to our lives, and why do others flop? Whose work and legacy transcends time, and whose feels stuck in it? Every episode of Pop Pantheon, we'll devote an entire episode to a pop icon. From titans of the genre like Beyonce and all the way down to uh, lesser titans like Nicole Scherzinger. Each episode, you'll hear a little breakdown from me and then some distinguished guests and I will chop it up about their careers, discographies, public personas, live performances, music videos, feuds, tweets, you name it. And at the end, we'll turn pop into fantasy football, make our final judgment and place them in the official pop pantheon. Welcome back to Pop Pantheon. This is your boy, DJ Louie, of course. Thank you so much for being here. I know we've got a bunch of new listeners in the house. Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. As always, please follow me on Twitter at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V and on Instagram, same handle. Please follow Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram. If you have questions about the podcast, about pop, about One Direction, about Charlie XCX, about Rihanna, please send them all to poppantheonpod at gmail.com and I will answer them on a future mini-sode. Also, please, if you have time, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store. That is how the podcast gets seen by more people. Tonight, Thursday, December 2nd, as usual, we will be having a Discord chat about pop, about Rihanna, about anything y'all want to talk about. Link for that is in the bio. It goes down at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I will be there. Lots of other great people will be there. We'll have plenty to talk about, I'm sure. So join us for that. Don't forget, every episode comes with a Spotify Essentials playlist for that week's artist. That is linked along with everything else, including the Discord. In the show notes, it will be linked on social media, etc. Some light housekeeping notes here. This episode and our episode in two weeks, which will be the part two of this episode, will be our final episodes for 2021. And we will be back in the new year, first week of the new year, with new episodes. So that's that. As alluded to earlier, this is part one of a double header about Rihanna. Obviously, humongous topic, could not be contained to a single episode. So twice as fun to finish out the year on, I think, a pop star that a lot of people have been waiting for this podcast to cover. I know I have. And may I humbly say, I believe it delivers in spades. So I hope you enjoy this. Here she is, the only woman that could ever get me to join a Navy. Pop Pantheon, Rihanna. Nah, 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 come on. Pop artist superstardom can center around numerous traits. For some, like Beyonce, it's about virtuosity, otherworldly and untouchable talent and performance ability. For others, like Taylor Swift, it's about songwriting and songcraft, the ability to touch millions with a single biting turn of phrase. For others still, it's about none of those things, but instead something more ethereal, 
a quality which simply cannot be learned or faked and only naturally embodied. That thing is effortless cool. A je ne sais quoi that you bring to any song, performance, fashion choice, Instagram post, or even glance on a paparazzi lens that just by sheer dint of you doing it makes it utterly intoxicating. This intangible elegance and all-encompassing charm makes it such that you may not be the best at any traditional craft associated with a pop career, but it really doesn't matter. You are the moment, as the kids say, just by being yourself. No pop star or icon in any field really in the 21st century has epitomized or weaponized that latter trait better than Robin Rihanna Fenty. Born in Barbados into a troubled home life laden with addiction and domestic abuse, Rihanna began her journey to world domination at 15 as part of a girl group that got attention from pop producer Evan Rogers. Quickly recognizing her star quality, Rogers took Rihanna to New York, where, as legend has it, she performed for Jay-Z, then the CEO of Def Jam, who signed her on the spot. Rihanna's debut single, the pop dancehall heat rock Pone de Replay, was released in 2005 and became an instant smash, hitting number two on the Billboard Hot 100 as part of a broader wave of Caribbean sounds dominating pop radio at this time, and launching a rocket ship that would see Rihanna become one of the biggest pop singles artists in history. Less than eight months after her debut album, Music of the Sun, Rihanna followed up with a series of smashes from her second album, 2006's A Girl Like Me, which broke from the reggae and dancehall grooves of her debut and displayed an artist of almost limitless versatility. The lead single, her first number one, S.O.S., presented her as an icy dance pop princess over a prominent soft cell sample, while follow-up top 10 Unfaithful showed a darker side as a forlorn, melodramatic, and vulnerable balladeer. But it was her third album, 2007's blockbuster Good Girl Gone Bad, that turned Rihanna into the superstar of the era, unencumbered by any traditional genre markers and able to fluidly personify any pop mode with her singular, reedy, almost tossed off sounding and instantly recognizable vocal approach. The album featured no fewer than seven top 20 hits, including the 80s rock stylings of Shut Up and Drive, the mid-tempo R&B of Hate That I Love You, the four on the floor EDM presaging Don't Stop the Music, and of course, the pure pop power ballad that remains her signature song, the number one smash umbrella. Gone Bad made Rihanna the biggest new pop star of the latter half of the aughts, an artist who represented a future for pop that was less about genre specificity and traditional music prowess and more about a bold, frosty brand of coolness that could apply to any endeavor, on record or otherwise. But on Grammy night 2009, which was meant to serve as a victory lap for Good Girl's massive success, 
Rihanna was assaulted by then-boyfriend Chris Brown. Brutal images soon surfaced of her battered face, and suddenly, the then-seemingly impenetrable new icon's entire image and career seemed to change in an instant. Rihanna channeled her pain into her fourth studio album, Rated R, later that year. A much darker-toned record than the pristine pop of her previous work, Rated R focused on themes of revenge, lost love, a till-then-unseen level of self-effacing, unguarded emotionality, and an almost operatic sense of tragedy, while also leaning more heavily into rock, the then-ascendant dance music subgenre known as dubstep, as well as hip-hop on singles like Hard. Radar wasn't quite the commercial juggernaut of Good Girl, but it became her most critically well-received album yet, and elevated her pop superstardom to something greater than that of a savvy hitmaker. It made Rihanna a fully fleshed out and perhaps even strangely relatable pop cultural supernova, with a giant army, or uh, navy, of fans who hung on her every song, every fashion choice, and every social media post. It also sent Rihanna on a nearly unprecedented run of albums and generation-defining hit singles, perhaps the greatest pop imperial phase of the last two decades, releasing a record every November from 2009 to 2012, each laden with a sheer panoply of the century's greatest pop songs. 2010's Loud, 2011's Talk That Talk, and 2012's Unapologetic found the singer experimenting with increasing looseness in every subgenre imaginable and turning every single one she attempted into a centrist pop smash. Reggae and dancehall on tracks like What's My Name, You to One, and Man Down. Rock and roll on songs like Cheers, Drink to That, and California King Bed. Gossamer power pop on songs like Diamonds and piano ballads on Stay. Michael Jackson-esque disco on Nobody's Business or dubstep on What Now and Jump. Straight up trap and hip hop on Birthday Cake, Fresh Off the Runway, and Pour It Up. And of course, massive EDM bangers on hits like Only Girl in the World, S&M, and the 12 week number one, We Found Love. In the hands of any other artist, this all might have felt like a giant hot mess. A throw everything at the wall and see what sticks approach that could have read as off-putting cultural costuming. In Rihanna's, though, it all held together as a body of work by someone who could make anything her own by sheer force of her authenticity and comfortability in her own skin, sexuality, and almost supernatural star power. The breakneck pace by which they came out also set the tone for the next decade of pop, one in which carefully plotted album eras were being replaced by a constantly unfurling, almost stream-of-consciousness approach to releasing music. Her superlative personal style, as well as her early adoption and fluid use of the then-new social media platform Instagram, furthered Rihanna's rise to the top of the pop cultural heap in this period. But by the time Unapologetic was released in 2012, a sense of exhaustion was setting in. Following that album and her massive Diamonds World Tour, Rihanna disappeared from pop for four years before returning in 2016 with Anti, 
Here, with very little left to prove commercially, Rihanna radically shifted her approach, trading in more intimate, idiosyncratic song choices that continued her non-fealty to genre, but also sounded insular and strange, loaded with angst and personal detail and not necessarily aimed at being traditional pop radio fodder. And yet, a testament to her imperial ability to bring broader pop cultural trends along with her whims, Auntie not only became her critical crown jewel, but continued her run of hits, with the forlorn trap of Needed Me and the wall of sound girl group nodding Love on the Brain each going top 10, and lead single, the minimalist hypnotic dancehall track Work, hitting number one for nine weeks. Just get ready for work, 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 work. It's to me, I be work, 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 work. You see me do me da, 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 da. It's to me by that work, 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 work. Rihanna has largely stepped back from music, instead applying her unique brand of cool in other fields to continued massive success. Her Fenty Beauty makeup line has become a multi-billion dollar success story and set off a wave of copycat celebrity beauty products, while her Savage Fenty lingerie line and attendant extravagant fashion shows has become similarly culturally dominant. And while the world awaits new music from one of the greatest pop icons of her generation, almost to the point of parody, Rihanna's influence is seen widely in pop music today, where stardom centers around authenticity rather than virtuosity, and where music is perhaps just one brand extension in a broader empire, all grounded in a cult of personality. With sales of over 250 million records worldwide, Rihanna is one of the best-selling music artists of all time. She has earned 14 number one singles and 31 top tens in the US, as well as 30 top 10 chart entries in the UK. She is the 10th biggest artist of all time, according to Billboard metrics, and has the fourth most number one singles in Billboard history, behind only the Beatles, Elvis, and Mariah Carey. She has also spent the most time in the top 10 and, other than Elvis and Mariah, the most cumulative weeks at number one on the Hot 100 of any artist in music history. Her accolades include nine Grammy Awards, 13 American Music Awards, 12 Billboard Music Awards, and six Guinness World Records. Time named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world in both 2012 and 2018. Forbes ranked her among the top 10 highest paid celebrities in both 2012 and 2014. And as of 2021, she is the wealthiest female musician in the world with an estimated net worth of $1.7 billion. Here with me on the podcast, and again in two weeks, to discuss one of the greatest and most fascinating superstars of the 21st century, is former editor-in-chief of Jezebel and author of The Report, Julianne Escobedo Shepard. Okay, so I'm here with Julianne Escobedo Shepard, former editor-in-chief of Jezebel, certified Navy sailor, as, uh, <laughs> as, we, as we come to call them, I guess, and also famed author of The Re-Report. Julianne, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Um, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and to be talking about my favorite topic, basically, that exists ever. I gotta tell you, what a treat to go back and listen to all of these albums. Like, mm. I... I was just like, you know, I often do that for obviously to prepare for this. And sometimes it can be a slog. You know, I recorded an episode a couple of weeks ago on Post Malone. And, you know, that was a uh, <laughs> that was, you know, I, I let me I, I bit my lip and I got through it. But this was 
just the sheer volume of incredible music is just an, a, a kind of mind blowing. Yeah, just like banger after banger. And like I'm sure we're going to talk about, she has such versatility in both, you know, genres and what she has done, but also her voice. Her voice can go any direction. Like, and I also, I would like to hear her sing, like, you know, country, you know? Like, <laughs> I would. I want to know what that, like, reedy voice sounds like. You know, maybe she can, like, do a duet with Mickey Guyton or something. I don't know. But. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I it's, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking as I listened through, like, this discography is a testament to just try anything because you never know what, what you might be good at. <laughs> she sounds absolutely fluid and authentic in so many genres, which, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's another pop star that I can point to that can have that level of versatility. It's like rock, reggae, dancehall, EDM, R&B, straight up rapping and hip hop. And there's, it never feels contrived and it never feels like she's trying on a costume. It somehow she works in all of these formats. It's extraordinary. Yeah. I kind of wonder if it's that special thing that she has where you know, we're going to talk about the Rihanna thing, obviously, but like, she is comfortable in her own skin. And that's like, Mm. what part of her charisma. And I think that she just sort of approaches, I mean, I don't want to diminish her musicality, because I think it had like, that is the level of talent that she is just so chill, and she can just ease into it. And she has confidence. And yeah, she's not forcing anything. She's just doing it. Right, it's like coolness, taste, and comfortability is kind of her musical ace card, weirdly enough. It's not virtuosic talent or, you know, songwriting or whatever, like that these other artists, like a Beyonce, it's all about virtuosity. Taylor's all about songwriting, you know. Rihanna's thing, and I guess we'll, we'll get more into granular detail about what exactly this is, is the sort of coolness, the ease in a sense. Yeah, the self-assuredness. Right, the self-assuredness. Yeah, it's really... And, you know, it was actually fascinating going back and listening to it because another thing that I picked up just kind of going through the discography was she's someone we really watched blossom. It's like some pop stars emerge to us more fully formed. Like I think about a Lady Gaga or something as a contrast of like an artist that appeared as kind of like a fully formed entity who kind of like knew her strengths and and then frankly actually kind of struggled to go elsewhere like it became kind of like after the first run of success kind of like all right a little bit of floundering around with Rihanna it felt like we watched her come into herself in Mm -hmm. a way that just allowed the career to kind of peak slowly over time which I think really benefited her yeah it's funny like revisiting the early stuff because so I interviewed her right after Ponder Replay when I was working at MTV. And she was a teenager, obviously. (laughs) When I think back to that, she was just clearly a teenager. And she was sort of shy, I would say, a little bit. Mm. And, you know, she obviously wasn't media trained at that point because she was just sort of like quiet and shy. And it's so weird to think of her like that compared to like who she has become as like an mm. adult woman. It's amazing. And, and and when you watch those early videos, she seems shy. I mean, I it was it's funny watching that poem the replay video and being like, you know, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but yeah. I had no freaking idea when that song came out. I said, 
this is a one hit wonder. I remember it was like simultaneously to like Cassie and there was all of these, Christina Milian, like there were all of these yeah. kind of women that were sort of dabbling in R&B who just had one hit wonder written. Lumi D. I mean, people that were yeah. like had one hit wonder written all over them. And to me, when I heard Pawn the Replay, I was like, great song. We will never hear from this woman yeah. again. <laughs> So I want to take us back to prior to Rihanna's emergence in the mid-2000s. So what is going on in terms of mainstream pop? Let's say 03, 04, who are the main players? And like, what is the sound and aesthetic of pop stardom at that time? So I think at that time, you know, those were sort of the glory days of like radio R&B, I think, you know, you have Mariah, <laughs> really, really queen, really, really dominating. You have, you know, Beyonce has just come out as a solo artist and is making these giant hits. But also at the same time, both dancehall and reggaeton are becoming more mainstream in the U.S., you know, on like mainstream pop radio, basically. So you have all of these influences that are kind of converging at one time, at the same time that we're about to get into like the LimeWire revolution <laughs> where people <laughs> where people just like it's not like genres are starting to crumble a little bit and you can't maybe see it on like MTV and VH1 and Hot 97 but you kind of can it's like start the curtains starting to come down so in terms of the sort of as you were getting at the reggaeton and sort of Caribbean sounds that were crossing over what was that looking like? Who were the artists that were doing that? And what were the sort of sounds of those records? And why do you think that they were having a moment in, two, in that sort of mid-2000s era? Well, so I think one thing was like, obviously, Sean Paul became gigantor famous <laughs> in the U.S., you know, outside of diasporic communities. Just give me the lights and pass the job. Also not a buckle more. Yeah, let me know my sides and I got to know which one is going to catch my flow because I'm in the vibes and I got my dough. Also not a buckle more. Yeah, I'm looking up and I got to know. Could I be your... And I'm thinking specifically of Hot 97 because this was like a peak Hot 97 era. But also we had the Diwali rhythm, which was huge and permeated so much of pop culture, not just like, you know, Lumidi, who you just shouted out. Shout out Lumidi. Shout out Lumidi, baby. Yeah. <laughs> would have been a great Rihanna song, honestly. It would have been, honestly. I mean, and that was actually like, you know, that's the moment that she comes into where, you know, Diwali rhythm was everywhere, was influencing not just that song, but like influencing all of pop music. Yeah. And then you have like these crossovers of Sean Paul and Wayne Wonder, and then you get like early vibes cartel. And then obviously like Dago and Daddy Yankee. Ella le gusta la 
this sort of Caribbean influence makes waves in the mainstream in ways that it hasn't for a while. So let's circle back to Rihanna. So, oh, that's the other thing. I really want to try to say her name right. I know we all know. say Rihanna. Why? How did that happen? How did we all start saying this woman's name wrong? No idea, but it's been going on for like two decades. Like, what the hell? <laughs> but yes, it is Rihanna. <laughs> it's Rihanna. Rihanna. I'm really going to try that. I'm re- I, I want to make sure I'm honoring saying her. She's what a graceful queen for like not just correcting everybody 24-7 for saying her name wrong <laughs> for the last 20 years. <laughs> and you and I, before I let you, are going to set the record straight on something that I get in fights with people all the time. When you introduced yourself to me all those years ago, because you almost didn't expect people to know who you were, you said, Rihanna. I knew this was the question. I, it is Rihanna. Thank but, you. Th- no, no, yeah, no, no. That's this, all we need to know. That's, that's all we need right, to know. right. Whatever Rihanna. So what is Rihanna's story? She is Bayesian, and how does she get discovered and get a record deal? So she was in a girl group when she was a teen, a young teen, like 15, And somehow Evan Mm -hmm. Rogers, um, they go to audition for him and he's like, yeah, it's not you, but it's just Rihanna. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hold on. I just want to pause you really quickly just for the audience. So this guy, Evan Rogers, who discovers Rihanna is part of a production duo called Evan and Carl who are kind of like in the mix with a lot of the pre- like just previous generation of pop stars at boy bands, girl bands, etc. Jessica, Christina, 98 Degrees. I think some of their most recognizable hits to that point are the NSYNC song, God Must Have Spent a Little More Time on You. When I look into your eyes, I know that it's true. God must have spent a little more time. And then I think uh, they also produced Kelly Clarkson's The Trouble With Love Is. So they're in the mix, but they're sort of not top shelf. They're not like on the sort of Max Martin level of producers of that previous era. I know that Evan is married to a Bayesian woman, which is part of the reason why he's down there in the first place. Yeah. So anyway, you were telling us about Evan and Rihanna's meeting and their journey together. Yeah, so he brings her to the States to perform for Jay-Z, who at the time was the CEO of Def Jam, which can you imagine? Remember that time? (laughs) No. (laughs) You know, they're immediately like, oh yeah. Like she sings, (laughs) you know, she sings some songs. I think she covered Mariah Carey or something. I think it was uh, Whitney for the love of Okay, Whitney. Yeah, and you know, I just wanted to quickly insert, again, so sorry for interrupting. I'm like brimming with things I just need to get your thoughts on. I always (laughs) am like shocked by that story a little bit because for all the amazing things we're about to unfurl about Rihanna, voice which I think is so important to her it's just not it's not a powerhousey 90s diva pop starry kind of voice so every time I hear that story about Jay-Z hearing yeah. her sing Whitney and getting it right away I'm kind of surprised yeah because yeah. like a her voice has grown a lot since then so now I think of it as a more powerful instrument but back then it was not and right. you know I've tried to find YouTube uh, videos of her singing that Whitney song as a teen and I can't find them but you can see a video of her performing Hero by Mariah it, when she was 15. And, you know, it's it's not like it's bad, but her voice is nasally and a little pitchy and does not have the power of the 90s divas even, like, whiffing at it. You'll find no way. Hero. 
if you pair that with how shy seeming she is yeah. in some of these early videos, I'm like, he really saw something there that like I certainly didn't see early on. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think when you go back and revisit them, you can hear it because it's her voice. She has right. a very, very distinct voice that mm -hmm. sort of like reedy quality. And I think he just knew they could develop it. So basically, she has all these appointments with record labels. And L.A. Reid is like, don't let her leave this office. Mm. We are signing her. So they don't let her leave and they sign her that day. Wow. Wait, so is Ponda Replay in the bag at that point? Ponda Replay is already written. And right. Jay-Z didn't want her to have it, right? So we also have to contextualize this with Tierra Marie. <laughs> we could not <laughs> escape Tierra Marie in this Poor conversation. Tierra Marie! Oh, I know. <laughs> So Tierra Marie is also on Def Jam and like everyone's convinced that she's the one and that Rihanna mm -hmm. is not going to be the one. Mm. And it turns out that wasn't the wave. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you don't say. <laughs> yeah. Young princess of the rock. Tierra Marie. We get busy. I love that we're taking a small but like very heartwarming journey through the one hit wonder R&B artists of the mid 2000s that I know we all hold close to our hearts. Lumi D, Tierra Marie. <laughs> so Pondery Play is written and Jay's like, nah, I don't think she should have it. Like Rihanna's not big enough. And then she sings it. And then he's like, oh yeah, this is actually your song. It makes sense. And then I think there was an, an interlude where the Def Jam had a showcase where Tierra Marie and Rihanna are both performing. They're performing for people in the industry. They're not out yet. And Beyonce goes up to L.A. Reid and is like, Rihanna is the one. She's got the Whoa. voice. She's a star. She like anointed her. It's in L.A. Reid's autobiography. Wow. Like, that be is a great anecdote. Yeah. Like, be Beyonce anointed Rihanna like early on when Rihanna's like, you know, 15, 16. That is incredible. I never heard that before. But yeah. it makes sense because it kind of loops back to what I said. Like, again, I mean, speaks to what a flop I am. I mean, they obviously got something about this that just I don't think is abundantly clear. So Poe and the Replay comes out and I think pretty instantaneously becomes a big hit. Yeah. What's going on musically on Pwn the Replay and how does it relate to sort of what we were getting at earlier with the reggaeton movement and the sort of crossover sounds of these Caribbean uh, kind of one-hit wonders at that time? So the production is very sparse and that's kind of what Dancehall was doing at the time. And it is very clearly like she's putting her stamp like I am Caribbean. I was actually listening to Tierra Marie just thinking about this earlier and it's like I can see why they bet on Tierra Marie because she had this sound that was very common and very popular at the time that was this sort of like hip-hop uh, R&B sound. And like a Shanti lineage. Yeah exactly and a Shanti lineage but they I don't think they really foresaw that Rihanna would 
hit the way that she did in so many different types of clubs. Rihanna's in the States. She's performing with like these dance hall DJs in New York, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. Ponder Replay is like, you could go hear it in a freaking Abercrombie or like you could also hear it on Hot 97 or whatever. You know, it has this crossover appeal. And I think that it just hits like so many pressure points at that time mm. that just, it took off. So what is it about Pwn the Replay as like an avenue for introducing us to Rihanna? Are there things that we, I mean, let's just say it's a fucking banger. So like that's, that's one thing. Rihanna, Rihanna has a knack for bangers. But is there something that we can tease out about that song where we see sort of the Rihanna thing as we were sort of getting at earlier? Is that evident on that song to you when you listen to it, even in sort of a nascent form? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's her voice. It's her voice. Yeah. Her voice right. just didn't sound, especially at that time where, yeah, we're coming off the Ashantis. We're listening to right. like Tamia and like there's yeah. this very like feminine quality to all of this like music. And, and I would actually even put Rihanna's voice in the lineage of like Mary J. Blige, where there's like a mm. little bit of edge in the low register of it. Sleep don't come easy. Boy, please believe me. Since you've been gone, everything's going wrong. And that is something that's like, okay, not only does she sound grittier a little bit, but also like I could sing this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like or she's Absolutely. not doing vocal runs. <laughs> See, this is I think this is something that is so important for us to put a pin in for the rest of the conversation because while her voice matures so much, the one thing that is very clear to me, even listening to Pone the Replay, is there's an effortlessness to it that can come across as lackadaisical, which yeah. I think is that kind of cool factor. It could come across as like, is she fully engaged in singing this song? Uh, but I actually think it's one of her unique talents, which is like, it almost sounds like she's tossing it away. Yeah. And as you said, that makes it accessible to people in a sense and also sort of portrays her coolness. Like there's something about her, even in her sort of shy coming out phase in this early moment, that still sounds like she almost just tossed this thing off in like two seconds and it was no big deal for her. One by one, even two by two, everybody in the floor, let me show you how we do. Let's go, dip it low, then you bring it up slow, run it up one time, run it back once more. You know, I don't think necessarily pop stardom needs to have a big singing voice, but it needs to have a voice that you instantaneously recognize. The yes. minute you start singing, you're like, that's Britney, that's Beyonce, that's Janet Jackson, that's whatever. And Rihanna has that from the get-go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's probably what Beyonce saw. And that's probably what Jay-Z saw when he changed his mind. But right. yeah, it totally. is like, so we're in an era... Like, no diss to anyone, but I'm going to use this term that's derogatory. But we're an era of, we're in an era of tryhards, right? Mm. Like, you see, like, Beyonce, Crazy Love, 2003, right? Yes, yep. but 2003, she mm -hmm. is putting her whole pussy in that. Like, she oh, is doing, she's hitting the choreography. She's like, oh, my God. fucking out singing the horn samples. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. <laughs> Crazy right now. Crazy right now. Crazy right now. Touch got me 
and like you know that we have Mariah who's like Mariah yes <laughs> you right, know right. and yes. all even, virtuosity right and even JLo who like I think that even JLo herself would agree that she's not like the best singer in the world is out here doing like amazing, like really hitting all this like complex choreography. She's like in the videos trying really hard. And then Rihanna comes along and she's like, I don't have to try because I have this je ne sais quoi. Like her star quality is there from the jump. And it was nice to see someone because there are other people who weren't trying as hard either, but it, or did, or it only works like for her. Were, it only works for her. It only works for her. That's the thing. Yeah. There's something about Rihanna not giving a fuck. And like, this goes to the no fucks given era that we'll get to later. Yeah. That works for her. That's part of her ace card. As you said, this sort of comfort and sort of like lack of try hardness really just functions as like an integral part of her pop stardom. Yeah. So yeah. pulling the replay blows up, hits number two on the hot 100. She yeah. releases this album, Music of the Sun, which I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on. I went back and listened to it for the first time the other day. What I'll say about it is, I, you know, they definitely tried to position her as a Caribbean artist. I mean, yeah. 90% of these songs are reggae, reggaeton, dance hall songs. It's been a minute since I saw you, boy. Must have made it to hear your voice. And I guess that I forgot just how you make me feel when you're around. It was weird listening to a Rihanna album, I felt, that is has one hit on it. You know what I mean? Like, you're yeah. used to listening to a Rihanna album and being like, wow, every single song on this is, like, loaded with memories and is, like, an iconic song of this <laughs> era. Like, Pone the Replay is the first song, and then you're kind of like, well, like, what's going on here? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I have a soft spot for if it's loving that you want. Yes, um, because it's song. it's yeah. a sweet song too. If it's loving that you want, you should make me your girl, your girl. If it's loving that you need, baby, come and share my world, share my world. But like you said, they're positioning her as a Caribbean artist. She collaborates with Vibes Cartel. There's mm-hmm. a remix with Elephant Man. Like, they're really like they're putting her in this specific category. But she always was going to transcend that i think and that's interesting too because like being categoryless is so key here so it was funny listening to an album of hers that felt so genre specific so then rihanna does do one thing here that becomes a trademark which is she doesn't take a ton of time she ditches this album very fast (laughs) eight months later we get another lead single called sos SOS is a a pivotal shift for every reason we've been talking about here. It is like a slamming dance pop song that sounds pretty far removed from the sort of like light reggae and dance hall grooves of her debut. And it presents her as kind of this like icy dance pop queen. Yes. So what is the sound of SOS and how does SOS sort of reposition Rihanna outside of Ponda Replay. So like I was saying, the quality that Ponda Replay had where you could hear it in an hour crombie, but you could hear it on pop radio or you could hear it like, you know, in a dance hall night at a club, right? Mm-hmm. SOS does that same thing where it is, it's not genreless because it's very clearly a dance pop song. It has that sort of electro quality mm-hmm. to it. And it repositions her because like we were saying, like she's not trying. This is, she's still not trying, like, 
Or she sounds like she's not trying. I don't want to diminish like all of the hard work that she's put into oh, yeah. all of this. But in, in SOS, she her personality starts to fill out a little bit. And you're like, oh, this person has, even though she's still a teenager, has like really complex desires. And mm. she has a, a, she's demanding in a way that is powerful. I'm obsessive when just one thought of you comes up. And I'm aggressive just when thought of also she shows that she can work in more genres and and obviously the Tina love sample is like immediately recognizable to like a large mm -hmm majority of the world as a right. huge song from the 80s. Times I feel I've got to run away. It showed us more of the contours of her personality and it solidified that she wasn't just going to be a one-hit wonder. Yes, and that's so key. This song hits number one. And, you know, the other things that's, that kind of came to mind when I was listening to it is remembering the music video where I, I kind of remember the music video for Ponda Replay and she seems almost like she's marking, she's hardly moving. There's there's something laissez-faire about that. This music video is more kind of like zeroed in, I found from her, and sort of is the first time that we get the sort of fashion plate element yeah. of her. And something this song and video gives us an early taste of is there's like a, a element of iciness to Rihanna. Like it's part of the coolness and it kind of cuts both ways because I think sometimes at the time it was perceived as emotionally shunted but like is also her cool factor like there's something sleek and icy about her on the debut including on Pwn the Replay there's a girlishness to it there's something um sort of cute and shy this is not shy this is extraordinarily sort of like sharp and icy in that sense yeah yeah for sure she's presenting herself as someone who knows what she wants and someone who's a little bit more complex and then also Something that, so this is like, SOS is her first, like, fashion collaboration. Mm. So she basically, and, and it's hard, like, I can't find it anywhere. I've been trying to find it for years. But she did a Nike collaboration where they did oh. SOS in the Rihanna, like, Nike dance outfits, which I know because I bought the fucking Rihanna dance <laughs> shoes. Thank you. Um, and then there's like, a, it, no, seriously, <laughs> they, you know, they're dance shoes for dance class where they're like sneakers, but they have, they were like, you know, flat soles. So you could spin around and stuff. And, um, but so she's on Nike's website doing court like choreography because you could learn the choreography to SOS via Nike's like dance, whatever promo thing. Right. Doing the choreography on Nike's website. And that was the first time I think that a pop star had, and we'll we'll have to fact check me on this, but I think that was the first time that a pop star had collaborated with a sneaker or an athletic brand, I think. Cool. Right. I'm not positive, but up until then it was just like athletes. And then here's Rihanna. <laughs> Second single, and she's already getting, like, lucrative deals with brands. Yeah. It was uncommon at that time. Right, and and it's so key because the Rihanna image is so important and and the fashion element of that, the taste of that, the, the coolness factor of that is so 
key to her pop stardom, generally speaking. And it's, again, it's not fully formed here yet. We still don't have that, like, full Rihanna image. But this is, SOS is like a song that I think sort of breaks so many molds, as we said. Breaks the one-hit wonder mold. Breaks the genre mold. Breaks the girlishness of the debut and sort of gives us, like, oh, there's more to this person than we maybe thought at first blush. And then she releases her second record called A Girl Like Me. Again, this is eight months after her debut. I mean, this is like a crazy clip to be releasing music. And on A Girl Like Me, we do really get our first taste of the genrelessness. The first song is is SOS, which is a slamming dance pop number. The second song is a reggae dance hall number called Kisses Don't Lie. Yeah. Banger. She sounds great on those kind of songs. Yeah. Then we get the second single, which is a piano ballad called Unfaithful. to me about Unfaithful and how that continues to sort of like rejigger Rihanna's persona in public imagination. And what is she singing about and what's happening on that song? Okay, so it is a Stargate collaboration which Mm -hmm. is, this is at the time when Stargate is on its way up to dominating all of the pop charts. And Neo actually co-wrote Unfaithful. You know, as we're in this moment of all these sort of like hip-hop influenced R&B songs, there's also this like power ballad thing that's happening in 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 R&B that like I still don't know if I it's not my favorite aspect of that era (laughs) but here's another aspect to her voice and another emotional tenor that she can master she's singing and you're like I like is she crying (laughs) you know Mm. you can hear this depth this emotional Mm. depth And you're like, okay, so not only is she a club queen or club princess at that time, but she also has this emotional resonance that you could really, like, sink your teeth into.
Unfaithful to me brought up a few interesting thoughts, which was one, it's our first introduction to the darker side of Rihanna, which mm -hmm. I think becomes a very important thing down the road to her. There is sort of like uh, a shadowy part to her persona and to her and like a flirtation with danger that yeah. I think is a really, it becomes very integral, especially post the Chris Brown incident. You know, yeah. comparing infidelity to shooting somebody in the head is pretty dark imagery for a pop princess. Yeah. And the other thing is a thematic thing that comes up in Rihanna's musical again that can't I can't help but link to the narrative around her and Chris Brown's relationship is these songs about sort of love as tragedy or love as inherently loaded with drama, sadness, sorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. She does contain genuine pathos. Like it's yeah. it's um, you know, there's a there's often a feeling in Beyonce's early work to me of sort of miming emotion. She's such a sort of showmanship classic sort of glitzy glammy pop star. And I think that this song is part of the genuine edge that Rihanna brings to things that mm -hmm. is part of like what makes her unique in the context of some of the other pop stars of her generation. This is the first time that that's evident to me on an emotional level, not just right. in terms of like a taste and sort of like a picking great dance bangers like SOS. You know what I mean? Like, right. Well, I mean, I think think that it's partly her voice because her voice obviously contains all these ways that she can manipulate it and ways that she can deploy it in service to like what she's singing about but also right. i mean and i'm gonna bring mary j blige into it again i love um, that comparison yeah like because rihanna didn't have like a happy shiny childhood like mm. she had a very troubled childhood her father had substance use issues and you know she saw some domestic abuse and so i think that probably that connection like you said where there's this love always sort of has this darker side to it i think it's genuine because particularly like how old is she at this time she's 17 right i think so she's, like i think she's 18 17 or 18 so yeah i'm not gonna presume to know her life like that but mm. i remember being 18 and not knowing real really shit about love no. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ditto. And, and so i think that she's had these experiences that are kind of make her wise beyond her years mm. and i think she brings that to it in a similar way that Mary J. Blige brought to her early music where it's like you're really expressing your life mm. it's not just about cranking out pop songs like this is her life yeah and her devotion to that is is interesting for someone that can be perceived in this early period as someone who's like the product of a song factory you know I think that that that's kind of an interesting counterpoint to that narrative that I think got that she got tagged to in the sort of pre-rated R era of like oh this is an artist that doesn't write her own material this is an artist that gets serviced songs um I read a quote from her about making a girl like me where she pointed out unfaithful and she was like i want to sing a song that eight other 18 year old girls can relate to about love and romance mm. and that was very important to her in recording that song mm. and apparently i mean the way she puts it is like she was involved i guess in like directing neo in terms of writing that and about in some sort of personal way so yeah that's really interesting and i agree it comes across very genuine it doesn't come across as a pantomime at all in any no. sort of emotional way and again as we're sort of summarizing i think this whole a girl like me era presents the seeds of what will become what a rihanna album is which is yeah. a genreless multi-format melange 
that is held together somehow by this cult of personality. I'm engaged in each of these molds. Yeah. And I feel like despite the fact that there's no unified sound to this record, I'm still engaged in this as a fully formed idea or project on some level because of her. Just the X factor, the voice. You know what I mean? Like that was how I walked away from that. So Rihanna has the second album. It has a three massive hits. There's also Break It Off featuring Sean Paul, another yeah. uh, dance hall classic. Break it off, boy, cause it got me feeling naughty. I wanna know, boy, if I can be a shy. And in what will become a classic Rihanna move, in less than another year after that, we yeah. are serviced a new lead single from a third record. Now, I have to admit that through the first two records, I was continually impressed with the longevity of her career, but I still wasn't totally seeing the vision of like a globally conquering pop star. I was like, okay, it's more than one song, but I'm still not sure I totally see this. Right. And then I heard Umbrella for the first time, the lead single from her third record, Good Girl Gone Bad, and the whole thing just clicked into place. So talk to me a little bit about Umbrella and why that song is so special and why that song sort of is, I would say, the moment where Rihanna establishes herself as like an AAA list Yeah. Star. So Umbrella wasn't just a single, I don't think. I think it was a zeitgeist. It mm. completely, I think it shifted pop music in a way that it hadn't been really shaken up for a while. Part of it is the sound was completely unique. It was really the first time that we're getting this big taste of the dream and Tricky Stewart, who right. are, I think, still one of the greatest songwriting collaborations that, you know, ever. It was not like anything else that was on the radio at the time. It It has this like very, very catchy metaphor going for it. And Rihanna just sang the shit out of it. And it's that sort of relatable quality where it's like, I'm just like Rihanna. Um, You know, (laughs) yes, I I personally, Juliana Soto Shepard, exactly like Rihanna. Yeah, Yeah, of course. I've been thinking Um, that the entire time. Yes, thank you, thank you. (laughs) No, but it has this every girl quality to it. She's a huge pop star, but here's this really girl next door ass song that Mm. sounds amazing, is catchy as all hell. The visuals are like pop art, and she's like just emerges with it as like a real true star yeah i agree it's a very unique sounding song it's like a mid almost like a mid-tempo ballad and the mm-hmm. production is incredibly sparse the production was created on garage band this is like a fascinating <laughs> little fact wow. it is essentially just a garage band loop with a roaring synthesizer on top And the story of Umbrella is also worth noting here. It's a song that got passed around to numerous artists and passed over. And it's sort of one of those fascinating moments in pop where it's like, what could have been? Speaking of Mary J. Blige, she passed on the song. Mm -hmm. Akon passed on the song. Britney passed on the song. And 
it lands in Rihanna's hands and you can sort of see again, like, I don't know if it would have worked with any of those other artists. And to me, one of the things that I wanted to pull out about why I think Umbrella is such an emblematic Rihanna song and why it is a song that I think sort of canonizes her in popular music is the post-chorus Ella's. Yes, yes, yes. One of the things that Rihanna is singular in is creating these noises with her mouth. And you were talking about the specificity of her voice and this unique qualities and textures of her voice. The Dream says when she hit the Ella Ella Ellas, he knew the song was going to be a smash. And that's a motif that we see in a lot of Rihanna songs moving forward. This sort of like non-word sort of vocal tics at the end of choruses. Ella, Ella, Ella. Oh, Nana, what's my name? Oh, Nana. This kind of like nasally, almost like addictive to hear and sort of like pleasurable to sing vocal tics that sounds perfect on her voice for some reason. And to me, you know, no, uh, none of the other artists that pass an umbrella. And again, it's like one of those things where it's like, ah, oh, she doesn't write her own songs, da, 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 all that stupid bullshit that people kind of try to heap on some Rihanna stuff. There is no artist that could have provided that X factor to Umbrella and made that song what it is. No, I don't want to say that she invented the R&B ad-lib because she did not. Right? <laughs> but up to this point, <laughs> up to this point, like an R&B ad-lib would be like a vocal run or like, you know, Melisma. just... Melisma, acrobatic. And Rihanna just comes in and simplifies it. And it kind of mm. is something that she may be taking a little bit from hip hop, but also when you think about the beginning of that song and Jay-Z ad-libbing, it's almost mm. like she's sort of mirroring him in a way, but with her own answer to it. No clouds in my stones. Let it rain, I hide your plane in the bank. Coming down at the Dow Jones. When the clouds come, we go. We Rockefeller. We fly higher than weather. And she flies to better. She's doing, like, pop R&B ad-libs like a rapper might. Mm. This is an interesting point because I think being able to operate like a rapper, A, her fluency with the genre, period. And this song yeah. doesn't sound like a rap song, but I agree. This is an important sort of like parallel to sort of how a rapper might operate or vocalize on a song. It's like her version of the Rick Ross grunt or something like that. Huh. I do think her ability to commune with hip hop is such an important key to retaining relevance through many different periods of pop music, yeah. especially into the present day, which is so, so centralized around hip hop. So that's a really, really good point. You sort of touched on the video. How does she look in that video and how does that add to this like zeitgeisty moment of Rihanna's crystallized? superstardom so i need to talk about styling um <laughs> please let's talk about styling so as we all know now rihanna looks like a supermodel but i don't think like really you know i don't think people really got it until this video mm. and mm -hmm. it is because of the styling prior to this she's like got like cute bobs and she's wearing the cute little 
clothes or whatever. Beyonce light, you know, like low rise jeans, God forbid, mm-hmm. um, God, <laughs> God help us. <laughs> and Umbrella, she gets this like super short haircut. It has like this little swoopy bang and she's wearing like dresses with pinafores and you're like, oh, she's also a style icon and she's a supermodel. And I mm-hmm. think that really was the first time that we'd really seen her like that. And mm. that put her in another echelon as well. Visually, suddenly, you know, she's getting like higher end fashion spreads. And you're like, oh, this woman has something a little extra to her. She's not like everyone else. And she's going to freak it a little bit in ways mm. that, you know, I think a lot of pop stars at that time were being playing it safer. Yeah. You know, I think about the actually the album cover of Good Girl Gone Bad, the album that Umbrella leads off, is her in just a very simple sort of like slinky looking dress, like it, almost mm-hmm. in silhouette and with the haircut. And it's a very simple look, but it's so powerful and it yeah. speaks to like you know the thing about fashion and style is that like you know it's all about the person wearing it it's so much less about like what they're actually wearing and I think that cover to me is so emblematic of that notion because it's just a dress and a haircut but yet she just looks absolutely like to put it academically that bitch yeah <laughs> and I feel like that was such an important moment umbrella and the cover of that album in terms of like helping people see that side of her yeah. And also the name of the album was such mm-hmm. a statement. Yeah, what does that represent? What does that represent? The album Good Girl Gone Bad. What does that mean? I think she really wanted to show that she's not she was not a little pop starlet, you know? Mm-hmm. I think she really wanted to show and emphasize her depth as mm. an artist and as a person and also that she is willing to be and wants to be a little edgier than a lot of her peers. It could have been perceived as cliche because at the same time, you know, this is the de rigueur mode of female pop stardom. It's like you start out as, it's like the Janet Jackson thing. Yeah. It's like you start out as the sort of like tomboy, innocent sort of like girl next door. And then you have your era where you're like, I have sex now. And like, yeah. I'm, you know what I mean? Like, so it could have come across that way. But with Rihanna, I think it was really just more her stepping into her true sort of being. Like it wasn't a guise of like, this is my sexy era or this is, there is something bad about Rihanna. And that's something that I think we were sort of getting at earlier with Unfaithful. There is an edginess. There is a danger there that I think becomes so key that it's really introduced on this album. So she then releases Good Girl Gone Bad, which becomes a absolute juggernaut blockbuster, like one of those pop albums that just like is unstoppable. And it really takes the genrelessness to the absolute Mm. hilt. You get the next single, which is a New Order sampling (laughs) rock song called Shut Up and Drive. Yeah. Her last collaboration with Evan and Carl, and I think their best production for her. Yeah. Then you get a mid-tempo R&B collaboration with Neo in the style of irreplaceable called hate that i love you yeah and then you get another completely disconnected genre in terms of the fourth single which is don't stop the music
up-tempo dance song, which I'd like to pause on for a second because yeah. I tend to think of Don't Stop the Music as the inflection point for EDM. That was a moment in American pop music where up-tempo dance music did not work. We had talked about earlier what was happening in the mid-2000s. It was hip-hop, 50 Cent, reggaeton, Everything was in conversation with hip hop. There, we did not. That was not mm -hmm. a moment where dance music was happening in America at all, and that is true through "Good Girl Gone Bad." So I remember when "Don't Stop the Music" came out. I was like, interesting choice for a single. I mean, great song, obviously. Very cannily samples Michael Jackson's "Want to Be Starting Something." Just like a total earworm banger, again, produced by Stargate, but becomes a bit of an unexpected smash in the context of everything I was just saying. So talk to me a little bit about Don't Stop the Music and why Rihanna was a good vehicle for dance music to finally break through in the United States again. Well, okay. So clearly it presaged, like you said, EDM. I think you had a good point where it is we're all kind of listening to these mid-tempo 110 BPM kind of mm -hmm. like thing. And I think there is a sort of desire to shift. This is, you know, era of like the mid-2000s R&B hip-hop thing has sort of, it's run its course and it's mm -hmm. sort of getting repetitive. And then I'm trying to think of what happened in 2006, 2007, that like... Future sex love sound is the future one sex thing that love I would sounds. put a pin in. There you, know you I mean? go. Yes. Yeah, so there's this sort of resurgence of electro in pop mm -hmm. music. You have sexy back. Go ahead, be gone with it. Come to the back. Go ahead, be gone with it. VIP. Go ahead, be gone with it. Drinks on me. Go ahead, be gone with it. Timbaland is producing for like Nelly Furtado and Carrie Hilson. Electro is coming back in a big way and mm -hmm. she has already done that. And, it, and you can hear the influence on those artists from SOS, right? Right, right. good point, yeah. But she is like, okay, I'm going to do this it's almost like a classic house construct, right? Where mm -hmm. it's like a diva singing about dancing <laughs> in the club for the club, right. <laughs> you know? And because it's a, you know, it's a faster BPM than, you know, you're like sexy back or whatever, it is a sort of more energizing club song. Right. And it really is a callback to the great kind of house diva songs of the early 90s, like Robin S's Show Me Love, for instance.
which obviously had largely gone out of fashion over the last 15 years as we were getting it earlier with sort of the primacy of hip-hop influences, but were clearly the number one blueprint for the Rihanna song, and thus the Rihanna song became a huge blueprint for EDM, which just essentially took those 90s house influences and maximized them to 100. And I just remember when that song became kind of a left-field unexpected hit, thinking, okay, this isn't just like some pop starlet who's able to like get good records from good producers. She's able to fully influence the sound yeah. of pop with her aesthetic choices and sort of imperially bring the sound of pop along with yeah, her. Yeah, and we cannot overlook the fact that she really did belt it like mm-hmm. a diva. Voice. 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 You could hear it a little bit in Unfaithful, but I don't know that we got the full breadth of what she could really do. I mean, Umbrella a little bit, because she's singing the crap out of that song, but... Yeah, it, I think it's the power. It's like, there's something mm-hmm. so self-assured, and that's such an important thing about a dance record like that. It's like, the command, you know? Yes. It, just, it felt like she's in utter control of what's happening on that song, and there's a power to it. I think also her icy coolness is a thing you want in a club record. Like, there's something about sort of her sleekness and the sleekness of her vocal and the sleekness of her command over that song that really works for a dance song. That's something you want to experience in a club. You know what I mean? Yeah, you want to feel glamorous in a club, even if you're mm-hmm. in a, a dingy rave. Mm-hmm. Like you yes. want it. And she brought the glamour. And once again, you believe her. You believe 100%. that she is about to give up her whole goddamn life to have the best <laughs> night in the club, you know? (laughs) Hell yeah. You know, and then the other thing is like, aside from the hits, there's a lot of other interesting aspects to Good Girl Gone Bad that I just wanted to quickly tease out, which is, again, the sort of love as danger. There's a song on there that feels eerily prescient called Breaking Dishes. Breaking Dishes, yeah. That is a song essentially like like dallying with with domestic violence and is a, a great record, another dream song. Yeah. But I thought it's kind of eerily knowing that she will soon be sort of in this abusive situation with Chris Brown. And then the other thing, which like if we're looking at Good Girl on Bad, it's kind of the prototypical Rihanna album. There's always nods to the to her sort of uh, Caribbean roots. On every yeah. album we get something. So on this record. Again, we get away from the chintzy reggae of Evan and Carl, and we get kind of a couple slamming Timberland dance hall songs. Yeah. Like, Let Me Get That is one that jumps out to me that's just yeah. fucking fantastic. Let me get that. It's always a question with all of her albums just of how much she will lean into being Caribbean. She's never not going to go away from that. And obviously, right. as she's gotten older, she's leaned more into it, I think, mm-hmm. and been more reclamative or whatever. But I think particularly at that time, I don't know that the market, <laughs> you know, was <laughs> was like, it wasn't as open as it is now. We moved past that sort we of reggae tone moment. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it, but it's, it's, you know, I love her ownership of that aspect of her personality. Like she's never dropped that. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of artists that get whitewashed for a lot of their career, especially artists of color that feel the need, especially earlier in their career to sort of like 
ditch that part. I mean, think about Mariah Carey, great example of, you're someone who's intrinsically would like to be an R&B and soul singer and yeah. who spent a lot of her early career trying to essentially make like the broadest pop music possible and was sanded down so much in that way and had to really reclaim that. I feel like Rihanna very consciously hung on to that part of her personality throughout, even throughout her sort of most broad pop. Yeah, eras. for sure. Yeah. So this album, as we said, humongous record. Rihanna becomes the biggest pop star in the world. It's re-released with a couple of songs, more hits, including the song Take a Bow, which yeah. is a Neo-written song, and also a hit written by her then-boyfriend Chris Brown called Disturbia, another sort of up-tempo EDM presaging song. She is on her way to the Grammys, and what happens? And uh, Chris Brown um, physically abuses her in the car. You know, he he abuses her quite, uh, judging from the bruises and like how the aftermath, he abuses her quite um, terribly, severely. Yeah. <laughs> severely, yes. And it's impossible to overstate what for people who don't remember or too young or whatever at that moment it was you know it was the king and queen it was like the prince and princess of pop it was mm -hmm. so shocking mm -hmm. and you know people didn't really know how to react to it also because the conversation about domestic violence intimate partner violence was not ever in like people were barely talking about like Ike and Tina at that time yeah. like or barely Whitney and Bobby yeah. or Whitney and Bobby like there mm. wasn't really a vocabulary for mainstream particularly pop music but just in the mainstream at all like people still don't know how to talk about it really but like totally particularly at that time it was very like shocking and you know a lot of people stood by Chris Brown then it was like a lot of brushing it aside I think later but mm. I don't know what do you remember about that what I remember about it is just this woman at the pinnacle of her success. And I mean, the fact that it happened in that moment yeah. is just so powerful. Like she was just absolutely on top of the world. And her personality at that time felt very Teflon to me. Um, yeah. You know, even though we've talked about ways she's exposed vulnerability, there was, it was genuinely shocking and deeply disturbing and about him too because he was golden boy i mean it's yeah. impossible to remember what a sweetie pie he felt like i mean chris brown's songs prior to this were with you and forever these sort of lovey sweetie pie yeah he was a teen, yeah he was a teen, he was pop, a teen star. pop star and everyone's 14 year old little sister was in love with him and you know he came out when he was a teen too it was utterly stomach churning that's what I, yeah. I just remember being like completely devastated by it just utterly and the pictures were so stark and brutal like it yeah. was just it was it was very hard to see and you know I remember her doing the interview with Diane Sawyer which was so painful to watch the picture taken that night have you looked at it I get very embarrassed I feel humiliated I get angry all over again every time I see it 
the whole thing plays back in my head. So I don't like to see it. Why be ashamed? Why would you be ashamed? I fell in love with that person. That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing that that's the type of person that I fell in love with. So far in love. So unconditional that I went back. It's humiliating to see your face like that. It's humiliating to say that this, this, this happened, to accept that. I struggle with how to talk about this totally because I think we have to set this up. Like, it, it was at once the most sort of tragic thing, but I also feel like it weirdly uh, propelled her to the pinnacle of her artistry. And that's hard to sort of talk about because it's so complicated but so much of the who who we think of as rihanna is someone that sort of rose out of that and came out yeah bigger and better than ever in a sense you know what i mean yeah for sure i mean you know i think one of the reasons that it did was that you know even though she was a huge pop star at the time it you know became a headline and it made her sort of more of a household name because we were people were talking about this thing that had happened to her not just about her music and then obviously like people who weren't like tuning into mtv to like see what rihanna had to say about things were tuning into yeah like the the primetime news to find out you know i think i think she became more of a household name because of it and then mm. obviously like you said it created this narrative however unfair of she overcame you know right right and and i think it's like prior to this even through all of her success i still think she was seen as an avatar by m yeah. much of the general public yeah and i think even though it's a dark way to come come about this in a career it exposed something that allowed her to be more to people than just a hit maker or more to people than just a cipher for great pop songs like yeah there was an it created an investment in her from the public that i think she utilized brilliantly in her work following it yeah and also you know i think particularly at this time pop stars you know we have to remember the time before social media and pop stars felt extremely inaccessible and you know they were over here on this pedestal and here's another thing that happened that was like okay like there is something deeply relatable. And also if someone who's this famous and this talented and mm -hmm. a model can can also be assaulted by their partner, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, okay, well, it brought a sort of awareness, I think, mm -hmm. where it's like this, this can happen to anyone. And then also it did sort of show that she was a person, not a pop product. So I think also what happens is there becomes intense focus on what Rihanna's going to do next in her career. There's no way that whatever comes next is not going to be viewed in light of this incident. It is so monumental in pop culture. And it this is the only time in Rihanna's imperial phase where she actually does take a beat to record mm -hmm. her fourth album, Rated R. There's a two and a half year gap between Good Girl Gone Bad and the follow-up rated R. And there's quite a bit of attention that is, I think, understandably public fixation on what will happen. So she returns with 
a single called Russian Roulette, which in contrast to the banger lead singles we're used to from Rihanna at this point, is a powerful, sparse, and rather haunting ballad. Take a breath, take a deep, calm yourself, he says to me, if you play, you play for keys, take the gun, and count to three, I'm sweating now, moving slow. turn to go and you can see my heart beating you can see through my chest said I'm terrified but I'm nothing I know that I must pass this test so just pull the trigger Talk to me about Russian Roulette and how, I guess, does it respond directly to what happened to her? And as the first musical output she has since this incident, how does it sort of relate to the narrative that's formed around her? So I think it probably does respond to it. I think she, working with Neo, who wrote it, really wanted to convey like what it was like to be in an abusive relationship. Like that. I mean, obviously, even just from the title, like Russian roulette is like, you know, mm-hmm. this narrative of like, you don't know, like, what he's gonna be like today, you know, mm. but it was really the only way that she fully addressed it. Like, she didn't really talk about it after that Diane mm. Sawyer interview. And right. it it was sort of, I don't want to say that she was evasive about it, because obviously, like, she, who would want to talk about that, you know? Right. Yes. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. First, for the benefit of your fans and strangers. But mm-hmm. it was a way of addressing it without having to do more interviews about it, <laughs> mm. you know? And I think that Rated R, it is a really overall it's a darker album it's a sort of angrier album she's experimenting Mm -hmm. with genre even more and i Mm -hmm. think it was perceived as her sort of working a lot of stuff out and then also becoming a fuller pop figure i think like a fuller person like the worst part of her life is out here on front street on the mainstream news so why not just like throw it all out there let's talk about rated r because what makes rated r genius and enthralling and perhaps her best work ever anti aside i guess i mean just in terms of the way that it sustains an aesthetic idea yeah like it's genreless and yet it hangs together as a mood in a way that most of her albums don't. And what I love about it is that she never makes a song that's like, here's what happened with me and Chris Brown. Yeah. Like all the songs deal with like the deeper emotions that she clearly was going through. You've got revenge anthems like Gangster for Life. I lick the gun when I'm done cause I know that revenge is sweet, so sweet. This is a gang, ladies bang, baby bang, tell me what you need. Uh, and 
any motherfucker wanna disrespect Playing with five finna get you wet How I feel down there on your knees You've got these amazing records where she sort of like positions herself in a masculine form in order to sort of like feel herself again or sort of like to to exert her power um, like on a song like Rockstar 101 or a yeah. song like Hard, Hard that is literally using like a metaphor of having a hard dick. She sort of uses these traditionally masculine hip hop tropes to reassert her power after sort of being disempowered in the public eye. What I love about Rated R is that it addresses what happened, but not in a sort of maudlin, hyper-direct way. It, it's, it's a mood. It's a mood of revenge. It's a mood of sadness and heartbreak, but it's never like this literal, here's my sob story. Like, she would never do that. She would never make like a goopy ballad album about her troubles and tribulations with Chris Brown. She was always going to make something cooler, edgier, weirder than that and that was what really stood out to me listening to it this time yeah she's she's not gonna be very literal she's she's and what you said about moods i think is actually captures what most of her songs are are moods right. and i think that's mm -hmm. why they are so indelible because it's about it's you know she's not talking about like it's not overtly autobiographical and therefore it makes it universal but she was doing what i think a lot of people wanted her to do on this album which is come out stronger like everyone's mm. rooting for her and yeah she's like doing the revenge thing but she's like taking her own power and utilizing it and recognizing mm -hmm. it and then coinciding with this album is the rise of dubstep. <laughs> right, right, right. And this is important. Right. So I was like a huge and almost like embarrassing dubstep <laughs> fanatic at this time. Thank you for coming clean about that on this podcast. But I was waiting for someone who was a pop star, an American pop star, to do something with interesting with dubstep. Mm -hmm. So Rihanna is the first... US artist pop star to really like embrace dubstep in this way. She works mm -hmm. with Chase and Status on many songs on this album. I pitch with a grenade, swing away if you're feeling brave. There's so much power in my name. If you pop up and you say it's steady, I'm gonna do the way. And it it suits the mood of the music that she's doing and also solidifies her place as like a dance music innovator in that space. Totally. And then there's also the visual element. I mean, she also is on the cover of this album in a very, in a way that you kind of can't hide from, covering her eye that she got hit on, that yeah. she had that big bruise on. That was a very powerful image. It's also interesting to you because like you get how emotional the album is from the cover image. She's also almost giving us like Susie Sue. Like she's mm. fully goth on this thing. <laughs> yeah. Susie um, Sue and also Grace Jones. And Grace Jones. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And then the other interesting narrative that I think we have to pull out from that's sort of floating on top of the artistic ambitions as I, I think as we said, we both love this record is that 
The first two singles sort of underperform. She presages this EDM thing on Don't Stop the Music. Yeah. And by the time Rated R comes out, we've got Lady Gaga. I mean, that is the sound of pop. And then she releases a record that, yes, it has dubstep nods, but there's no frothy dance pop on this album at all, which is a choice. Russian Roulette comes out, peaks at number nine, which is, you know, not... You know, for most artists, they'd be thrilled with that. But coming off of a record like Good Girl Gone Bad that had, I think, six or seven top ten hits, you know, that was kind of a moment. And then Hard, I think, peaks at number eight. And then the song that really saves this record commercially is by far the frothiest, most fun record on this album called Rude Boy. Come on, Rude Boy, boy, can you get it up? Come on, Rude Boy, boy, is your big enough? What is it about Rude Boy that allows that record to break through? Well, I mean, I think that it has that sort of cross-genre appeal. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's, you know, it's a pop song, but it also has a sort of dancehall undertone. And then also, it had, it's like the universal topic of the best pop songs, which is she's like, "How big is your dick? <laughs> How big is your dick?" And also, like. How are you gonna put it on me? And I think that that really resonated at the time. <laughs> and I think, yeah, oh my God, that is just the funniest thing. You know, it's so true. It's like, what's funny is it still works in the context of the album because it still almost feels like she's like, come on, you want to step to me? You know, and it still does almost have that revenge theme going on. But it's so fun, so playful. I'd venture to say the greatest Rihanna single. I don't know. I know that's a hard, that's a big one. That's a big statement. But uh, Boy is one. really up there though. <laughs> this song is what solidified in the pantheon Rihanna's particular dance style. It's analogous to her ad-libbing because yeah. unlike many pop stars, Rihanna can't really dance like a no. Beyonce, right? Like, and she is just sort of like fucking doing her thing. Like she's doing the, she does the pussy pat, she does the guns thing, she winds it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like she's not trying to like come out here and do a full routine for your ass, which I think kind of fits in too with her like, you know, I can get away with this because I'm just myself and I'm that cool. This moment, this video is where we're like, oh, this is Rihanna's dance style. And she will... (laughs) you know, continue on with that dance style for the rest of the Very that, very that. You know, and I also think it's her first reggae nodding hit since Pwn the Replay. So in a way, it's a record that both looks back at her past and also as kind of both a frothy fun pop song and something that is somewhat experimental. It really sets the table for the looser and more inventive, but still extremely addictive fun pop hits that will come in the second half of her career. Take it, take it, baby, baby, take it, take it. All 
right, y'all, that is part one of Pop Pantheon, Rihanna. We will be back in two weeks with part two. We will talk all the rest of Rihanna's albums. We will talk the fashion lines. We will talk the makeup lines. We will debate whether Rihanna is in tier one of the Pantheon. We rank all of her albums. And until then, please follow me on social media, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Follow Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram. Send your questions to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Come join the Discord tonight at 8 p.m., 5 p.m. Pacific. Until then, I will see you in two weeks for part two. Have a great life. Oh, baby.